Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Shouse in the House. I have with me today Cody Wisniewski, who is one of the senior attorneys with Firearms Policy Coalition. And I cannot even begin to tell you guys like how excited and fangirling I am at this point. Cody, thank you so much for joining me today. Of um, course. Happy to. I'm going to give just a little bit of a kind of a prelude to you being on the show to kind of introduce you a little bit to anybody that doesn't know you, which I don't know anybody who's listening to my show that doesn't know you. But um, with that being said, you've been with uh, FPC for, a, it's like you're on your like one year anniversary, right? You've been there since July of 22. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. And, but you have worked with FPC as outside legal counsel for quite some time. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So before I was with Firearms Policy Coalition, um, and I'm actually with FPC Action Foundation right now, which is our uh, our sister organization. Um, but before that, I actually ran a, a Second Amendment litigation outfit as well. Okay. And so we're going to get to that. But how I actually knew you is because of your writing with the Federalist. So like when I would do my morning shows and stuff like that, like I would come across your articles for my show whenever there would be like a 2A case that was working through or something like that. So I actually know you from that side first before um, before I knew you with FPC, which is kind of crazy. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm glad that somebody's reading those articles, at least, because then I, <laughs> I feel like maybe it's it's worth continuing to uh, continuing to write and draft because sometimes it feels like that's a little bit of a lost uh, a lost medium. Well, and it's funny because so many people consume audio or visual now. They don't consume written. I, I write, I, not that anybody ever reads any of my shit, but up for my website, I do write articles on a fairly regular basis and I, nobody reads them and it's got like pertinent content. In it. And I'm like, you guys should actually, pre-. and then I'll see somebody that'll ask a question later. I'm like, well, if you'd have read my article, you would know this. Already. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that it is, a, it, it's dying and it shouldn't because you can cover so much more especially with like linking to other sources and, and all like citations, it's important still. And I think that, I don't know, I, I really appreciate your writing. So I think that you should continue it. Oh, thank you. That's interesting. Cause I'm almost kind of the opposite. I don't know. Like I hate turning the volume on, on my cell phone. Yes. <laughs> so I, if, if video content comes through, like I'm way more likely to, uh, to read and to, to like captions. That way. yeah. Same. So, so yeah, I can't probably way too many videos on social media. I've watched air quotes by just reading the captions on them. But the other thing with writing is some of these issues and some of these topics are really like complicated. Law is not a, you know, easily buttoned up subject in a lot of these areas. And there's a lot of kind of historical baggage surrounding it too. So I feel right. like in, in writing, you can kind of lay out that background. And like you said, I mean, you can link through to other sources, other, um, 
other articles so that people can also get different perspectives. So, well, it just lends itself to so much more context. Like if I were to sit here and say, oh yeah, this case, and I just kind of reference the case, people are like, they won't, if there's not a link there for them to click through and read about the case, there's, they don't go get the additional context. And so they just kind of run with it without knowing the background. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm on the same page. Well, I'm going to clip this and I'm going to send it over to our uh, comms team at FPC. And then that way it'll justify me continuing to write at like <laughs> two in the morning during my downtime. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say with what your caseload is. I can't imagine that you really have a ton of time to write, but... Um, but if you get the opportunity, please continue to do it. <laughs> Plane flights and uh, and late nights are usually a good good chance right. to get words onto paper. I have to do a lot of editing the next day, though, um, because it's not necessarily my most professional voice that finds itself into a yeah. uh, into an article at yep. one or two in the morning. But that, that's why we have editing. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that. So I've gotten to the point where like. I don't edit. I just wait until somebody reads my stuff and they're like, oh, you misspelled this word or, oh, this, you, you missed a, a, a semicolon here. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I just go back and fix it. I let other people edit my stuff. <laughs> Crowdsourcing editing, smart. Yeah. I mean, they're going to do it anyway. So why not? Like, why take the time to worry about it? But um, let's talk about some of your past cases that you worked um, Sullivan v. Ferguson, California v. ATF, Syracuse v. ATF, like you've been hard against what I would argue is the most un unconstitutional organization that um, is in this country. But and then Aragon v. Grisham, which was a huge case out of New Mexico. Oh, man. We're, yeah, we're pulling up some of the old ones. So, yeah, uh, Aragon was an interesting case because that was that was one of our COVID cases um, that I litigated down in New Mexico when the governor closed down uh, gun stores during the, the initial part of the pandemic. And right. of course, New Mexico doesn't at the time or still doesn't allow for private transfers. And so basically they completely you know, closed off the avenue for anybody to make a, a legal or lawful firearms purchase. So that was a that was a really important one. It was a really interesting one during those kind of early days of COVID because that was when everybody was still adapting to figuring out how to work from home and you know what that looked like and what your at home office setup was for those of us that weren't right. you know, fully remote at the time. Uh, so that one brings back some fond memories. And of course, the governor backed down pretty quickly and. Uh, and reopened gun stores. So that case came to a, a happy conclusion. Uh, <laughs> right. But yeah, so I, I basically started out my, my first real big case was against the city of Boulder in Colorado, um, suing over their initial, uh, you know, so-called assault weapons ban. And I had done some work on some other cases up to that point, but that was kind of the first case that I kind of helmed and chaired um, through the courts. And eventually you know, that case got the the ordinance was struck down at the time. Uh, and then, you know, they've since repassed a, a new ordinance ordinance, sorry, that's being challenged in court. But it's been uh, it's been quite a few years and there have been quite a few cases uh, in between. But the, the cases involving the ATF are certainly uh, tend to be the most interesting and, and have in at least recent weeks and months been probably the most impactful. Right. We're going to get to right now, but I want I want to give some background context and get some opinion from you first on some things. 
before we get to current cases that you're litigating. Um, I want to talk about when when you're in, let's talk about like prep for one of these cases, because working in, in federal court, it's very different than working in like state court or even like civil litigation, you know, that kind of stuff. So talk to me a little bit about like, what made you decide? I, I did one semester of law school and I was like, yep, <laughs> no, fuck this. So I, what made you decide to go into law and do you are you happy about it? Like, is this a rewarding career for you? Is this, because you'll get mixed bag responses from attorneys. The workload is high, but if you have a case, you know, like Aragon v. Grisham, where you literally made it possible for people to finally purchase firearms during one of, one of the most tyrannical times of my lifetime. And so I, like, is that a rewarding thing for you or is it just a delicate balance and some days it's good and some days it sucks? Oh, there's a lot there. Um, I <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I went into law. So I had always, as a kid, kind of, you know, thought that I might eventually become a lawyer, uh, you know, in between thinking that I was going to be an architect and a... Because you argued with your parents every day. Like They tell everybody, I cannot tell you how many people, as soon as they learn that I'm a lawyer... The, the first response people say is like, oh, well, everybody thought I should have been a lawyer when I was a kid because I was oh, really that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think that's quite exactly what being a lawyer is. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so I balanced between being a lawyer and between thinking I would be some like really cool architect or a fighter jet pilot, like I'm sure all uh, all little boys did. Um, and eventually, so I went to college in Canada and I did my undergraduate degree I have a joint honors degree in classics and philosophy. And okay. I was originally in history and poli sci. I've always been kind of like really interested in history and really interested in um, kind of the backgrounds of political thought, I suppose, more so than being involved in like actual current modern politics. Mm -hmm. I was always way more interested in what was happening in, you know, Rome and, and Greece thousands of years ago, as opposed to what was happening, you know, currently in DC, which mostly just seemed to be frustrating and useless. And honestly, that opinion hasn't changed. Sure. Um, <laughs> but so I kind of went through this process. And then I, I realized that, you know, law might be the best avenue available to me and that it might give me an opportunity to, you know, have a good life, have a better life, have a really good career and kind of step into this new fold. So I'm, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, uh, let alone going to law school. And so it was one of those things of, you know, you take what your parents give you and you try and you try and use everything that you can and, and better that and make it to the next step so that then, you know, my kids will have that next stepping point. Sure. So that was, there was a lot going on behind it. But what I realized during that whole process and eventually going, getting into my first year of law school was that it was deeply frustrating to me how much people were willing to just go along with a narrative or to go along with what, you know, governments were, were telling people or regulations that were telling people how to live or how to exist. There was always this kind of inkling um, in my mind, you know, my parents were, were business owners for a period of time and, you know, dealt with, with government regulation and dealt with, you know, all of the issues surrounding, you know, business licensing and insurance requirements and taxing requirements and all of this. So 
it was always kind of in the background of my mind, but where it really kind of coalesced was once I had went to, once I decided that yes, a lawyer was probably the right career path as opposed to being like a museum curator uh, or a, a professor, um, <laughs> which I, maybe would have been an interesting career path for me. But sure. uh, once I got to law school and I was in my first year at uh, University of San Diego, there were very few of us who were, you know, leaned more conservative or libertarian. Um, and my con law professor was, was very fair, but certainly didn't share my viewpoints. And mm -hmm. I noticed very quickly, and it's actually something that I wrote about at a period of time, that in law school, we were learning constitutional law. We weren't learning the constitution and we weren't right. learning the history and the background. In fact, the constitution itself at my school and, and at many law schools across the country was relegated to, you know, your summer reading before class. Um, it was, look, just review it, read it, make sure you know, we're going to jump right into what really matters, what the Supreme Court says about the Constitution. And that just never sat well with me to the point that I actually keep a con law textbook in my office. It's, it was published in 1969. It's a two volume set. And in the entirety of the textbook, uh, it does not have the text of the Constitution in it. Now, this is a constitutional what? law. Exactly. This is a constitutional law textbook used to teach attorneys about con law and about the Constitution, and it doesn't even have the text in it. And it's just a perfect <clears throat> metaphor for what law school became. So um, to fast forward a little bit, I, I tried and, and thought maybe I could uh, have an impact on, on government from the inside. And that lasted about 364 days. <laughs> I didn't make it quite a full year um, <laughs> before I transitioned and I went and joined uh, Mountain States Legal Foundation where I started out my career in public interest. And my big, uh, my big move there was they were doing a lot of environmental work. They were doing a lot of um, Endangered Species Act work, um, property rights, right to own, right to use, but they had a couple Second Amendment cases. And I, I basically, when I approached them and, and when we were in the interview process, basically said, look, I understand that you need somebody to help on some of the property rights stuff, some of the ESA stuff, but I really viewed the Second Amendment um, as a as kind of the microcosm of the macrocosm of our system of government. And so I told them, I was like, look, I'll do this, do this other work that I know you need, but let me do this other work that you have uh, in covering some of these gun issues in these gun cases. Uh, and that's really kind of how it how it took off uh, on that side. So I want to go back to this book situation really fast. <laughs> this because what you're seeing right now, like in, in, like, how long ago did you go to law school? Like, what uh, was that? I graduated in 2016. Okay. So right now you're having law professors tell the president of the United States to disregard the Supreme Court decisions that are coming out. And you're, you're literally having people who are teaching the next round of lawyers to go against the foundation of our own country. Like that's what it feels like to me. It's, it's really astounding the way that attorneys end up dealing and, and working in constitutional law. And I think what, what people, 
people know this intuitively, but they don't necessarily put it in the context of think about how small of a percentage of attorneys in the United States ever do anything related to constitutional law, let alone make that their, you know, full and specific practice area. Right. Right? So most of your attorneys in the United States are dealing with, you know, civil litigation, contract disputes, injury cases, um, you know, drafting agreements that that's, that is the vast majority of, of law in this country. So there's a, a small subset that ever really tangles with, with, truly, you know, constitutional issues. And then it's an even smaller subset that limit their career to that area. And, and then, uh, you know, when you look at that, it's an even smaller subset who limit their career to that area and truly believe in, you know, the principles that our country was founded on and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so it's a very, very small group of people amongst an already small group. And you get this problem where law school is is confirmation bias, right? You're being taught by people who have a very particular view of government and of the Constitution. Very few schools are accepted from that. And then at the end of the day, for most attorneys, it, they don't even deal with it regardless. So then it never really enters their their daily thought or their daily considerations. And then you get lawyers who, you know, espouse uh constitutional principles behind this veil of and they've never fucking read the constitution <laughs> never read it yeah <laughs> and i mean to be clear too right lawyers are very self-important and lawyers think that they're special because they have a law degree and it, it gives this air of and people think lawyers are special because lawyers some people think lawyers are special because they have a law degree but it's Are true. you calling me out right now because I fangirled before we got on here? Is that what this is? Like a <laughs> no, no, little no. jab to be like, okay. No, of course not. No, <laughs> you're very kind. And I think like the difference there is we're right, we're talking about substance of work too, but there's a lot of people who hold themselves out as important just because they put an Esquire after their name. <laughs> and I think we should treat that with a grain of salt. It's just another three years of school and another test. I mean, it doesn't, you sh- there's no real should not der- derive any real credibility from the mere existence of a law license. <laughs> right. Well, and it, that's like politicians. We've celebritized politicians to the point where they think that they're, they're kings and queens living on high. And it's like, they go home and put their pants on the same way that everyone else. Actually, they're your servants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are not your rulers. And, and, so I, I understand what you're saying. And then a lot of politicians are attorneys, which probably goes into that whole process anyway. Okay. So, and I want to go back to one thing real fast. Like you're talking about this finite subset of people who are working so diligently to preserve you know, the natural born rights of citizens. And I, I sat and I was thinking about this. I went and took my kids to school this morning and I was driving back trying to think about like how I wanted this conversation to go and what direction. And I was just, I was thinking about what you guys have accomplished in, in, and not, I, I would still argue it's a short period of time from a legal perspective, but what massive movements you guys have made in preserving those things, you're the only people doing it. Like, and that's 
like, I just, I was thinking about like, what if, you know, Gun Owners of America and Firearms Policy Coalition, what if you guys didn't exist? Where would we be right now as far as our rights are concerned? And I don't say that lightly. Like, I'm not, I'm not, that's not a fangirl moment. That's a reality moment. And I honestly don't believe we would have guns in our hands right now if it wasn't for you guys. You know, people talk about the NRA being this big bully and this big, you know, whatever. They've done shit all nothing for the rights of Americans. Like, I, and I know you probably can't like speak to that, but when I, I went to the NRA um, convention this year and it was amazing to me the, like, I couldn't, I couldn't carry into the NRA convention. Like I, I couldn't exercise my rights at a gun event. And <laughs> that to me, like the irony of that is crazy. But I, I think about what if there was a world where the NRA, GOA, FPC, uh, Palmetto State Armory, Phoenix Ammunition, what if all of these people were all working together? We could be the monster that everybody tries to make us out to be, and we would have all of the rights that we deserve because then nobody, there would be no cowering anymore at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, and yes. And first and foremost, I mean, we've been incredibly fortunate that people have, people do enjoy our work and that people you know, trust us and they respect our work and that we've got, you know, members across the country and supporters across the country and partners across the country who enable us to do the things that we do. It, it really has been a short period of time, um, just in the past year since Bruin. And there's been so many victories compared to especially what was going on between Heller and Bruin. And we can, we can come back to that because I do want to make sure that I touch on your second point, which is, you know, I think, I think sometimes it's easy to see the, you know, the, this person's doing this, or this person's doing this, or this org's doing this, and this org's doing this. Uh, but I think when you look, and if you really do take a look at what's going on, you'll see that, you know, everybody is working, uh, oftentimes is, is working together and is working towards, you know, the, a similar eventual goal. Now, of course, there are some organizations who have a, a very different perspective of what the final goal may be. For, for FPC and for FPC Action Foundation, you know, our mission is maximal human liberty. Now, we're currently fighting and having that fight when it comes to gun rights because they are so uniquely important when it comes to the protection of, of life and liberty. I mean, you cannot, the, the ability the, the recognition of life is not important if you don't, or is, is irrelevant if you don't have the ability to protect your life and, and everything flows from your ability to protect your life. So that's the avenue we're in. But we truly believe that, you know, people should be free of undue and inappropriate government interference. People should be free to live their lives. That government wielding this monopolization of force over people is, is offensive. And, you know, the ATF is one of the worst offenders of this, right? They're, they're helping and, and putting peaceable people in prison for violating, you know, ridiculous statutes that have no actual bearing on danger or on protecting people. Right. 
but there are a lot of instances where we're all, you know, a lot of different people are working together and a lot of different organizations are working together. At the end of the day, what I care about is winning. I care about beating the ETF, beating them back. And I mean, maybe hopefully someday just getting rid of them altogether. I don't care whose name is on it. I don't care who's on the byline. I don't care who's on the signature block. What I care is that the work is as good as it possibly can be. We have the right arguments. We have the history on our side. We have the constitution on our side. We need to be making sure that we're putting these the best possible cases forward and that we're talking about these issues in a way that people can one, understand, and two, in a way that people fully understand what we're really talking about. We're really talking about the protection of natural rights, right? The Second Amendment is a convenient moniker. And we talk about, you know, Second Amendment cases and fighting for the Second Amendment. But the Second Amendment is a protection of the natural right of self-defense from both other people, right? Criminals who are trying to harm you, your family and your community, and also from tyranny. And it's that underlying right that is so important. And so all I care about at the end of the day is that we're winning, we're putting our best cases forward, and we're having the right conversations. And if that's me doing it, amazing. That's wonderful. I love doing this. I love being able to fight for people's rights in courtrooms. I love being able to wake up and, you know, make a difference in our clients' lives, our plaintiffs' lives, and, and people's lives across the country. You know, that it's, it's a really humbling opportunity. But at the same time, if it's somebody else doing it and they're doing it right and they're doing it well and we're advancing the cause forward, I love that too. So I want to go back to uh, what you what you just kind of touched on for a second. When you're talking about uh, bringing the right cases forward and right now, I mean, the main focus is obviously the Second Amendment because without that, none of the rest of them stand, right? Like that's the the last bastion of defending everything else that we have as natural born rights. Do you foresee in the future more work on First and Fourth Amendment violations or even, I mean, any of them, but um, like speech and right to privacy, I feel like those are in- incredibly tainted as well at this point by by the government. And we see, I know Twitter files, like a lot of people are like, oh, that's no big deal. But you literally had the conjunction of the United States government working with the one uh, public square arena that people have in today's society. Back in the day, when you know when all of this was created, the you had to walk out in your yard and go on into town on your horse, and that was where people communicated with one another. Technology has moved forward, but the rights of citizens hasn't changed. And so, I, I'm curious if you guys are going to start kind of delving into some of those types of litigation cases moving forward. Yeah, it's it's always really tough, right? I mean. Uh, if, if you're a, an attorney that sues the government over constitutional violations, uh, it's kind of like being a dog, a dog in a room full of bones. <laughs> I mean, there are umpteen million violations that we live with day in and day out today. So one yeah. of the things that we do try to be very careful about is being focused and making sure that we are taking on the most important fights that have the most potential for impact. 
right? And so we want to make sure that we use, I mean, we're not, you know, we're not Bloomberg, right? We don't have Bloomberg dollars. And so what we try and do is, is use our resources most efficiently and most effectively to take on the fights that we know set us up strategically for really important and big victories. So that is always our focus. Now, right now there, we have about 54 active cases across the country, uh, which is a a huge number and really uncommon uh, not just in in this space, but in the, the liberty movement writ large. I mean, that is a huge portfolio to have. That's a huge number of cases that we're we're litigating and we're fighting. And you know, we do have a lot of focus on these major areas in in you know this gun rights space. You know, dealing with these so called assault weapons bans, dealing with these you know magazine bans, dealing with the ability of eighteen to twenty year olds to be able to purchase, possess, and carry firearms, uh, which right. is a particularly offensive issue. But uh, that doesn't mean that we don't also have the opportunity to weigh in on other cases. So I know that um, we do have some litigations on First Amendment. So I know that we have a case uh, or we were working with a case on an individual who was, I think that they were kicked out of school for wearing a, uh, a come and take it hat, I think is what it was. Oh, wow. Um, and so that was, you know, it's an intersection there of kind of First Amendment underlying kind of the gun rights space. And there have been other opportunities and where we've weighed in on Fourth Amendment issues, on search and seizure issues, on right to privacy issues. And so when those come up and we do have an opportunity to jump in and, and join in on those, we, we absolutely will. Like I said, we believe in maximal human liberty. Right now, that fight for us is is predominantly focused on gun rights. But we fully understand that that is, you know, one facet of a multifaceted approach. And, you know, I, uh, I hope that someday we have so few gun rights cases because we've won so many across the country that we can have a, a full docket of other cases. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that day comes too. <laughs> um, and we're going to get to that. So let's go back to the between Heller and Bruin. Let's talk about let's talk about just that transition of how, and I mean, love him or hate him. And this is more to the audience than to you, Cody. Uh, if there is anything that Donald Trump accomplished, it was giving us a Supreme court that gave us the ability to actually reinforce the constitution in some form or fashion where, especially from like, from this case, New York v. Bruin, I think is, it's like a waterfall game changer for gun laws across the country. And so kind of walk me through how we got from Heller to New York v. Bruin, where what that looked like in that time frame. Absolutely. So, you know, you've got this really unique background for, for Heller, right? So Heller was focused on uh, DC's prohibition on the possession of, you know, effective prohibition on the, the possession of hand, a functional handgun in the home. There was a permitting process, there was ridiculous storage requirements. And, you know, the background story for, for Heller is that Dick Heller was a security guard at the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse in DC, where he carried a gun for his work in order to defend federal judges, essentially. And yet when he wanted to get a firearm 
to protect himself and his family and his home, uh, he wasn't allowed to do so. He had to go through this entire restrictive process and it was in incredibly prohibitive. And that image just, I think, is incredibly important. This idea of somebody walking to work, strapping on a gun to protect the federal government, to protect federal judges, and then being disarmed by that exact same government in his own home is exactly the sort of restrictions that we still deal with today. In a yeah, it's capacity. funny. You know, you watch Joe Biden and Kamala Harris come out and say, no, no American civilian needs an assault rifle. Meanwhile, they're standing there with surrounded by people with assault weapons in their pockets. And it's just ridiculous. But anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yes, it absolutely like that issue fires me up for sure. Because like, you're talking about politicians who are standing in front of people telling them that they can't own these things to protect their own families and loved ones. And yet the politician stands there while protected by those arms, protected right. by the exact things they prohibit to us. But, but anyways, so for Heller- I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 you're good. I just, it'll get me real fired up. And I, I'm. <laughs> That's what we want, Cody. We want you all fired up. Okay, keep uh, going. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, so Heller is, so Heller, of course, is this landmark Supreme Court decision. And basically what the Supreme Court did was, it was the first time that it recognized that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. And it recognized that that that, that right had to be understood as it was protected when the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791. Of course, you have McDonald that comes, that was in 2008 when Heller was decided. And then McDonald comes down two years later. And functionally, the importance of McDonald is, it's what we call an incorporation doctrine case. Basically, okay. what McDonald said was, everything that was said in Heller that applies against the federal government also applies against the state governments. Um, and it basically just confirmed that the Second Amendment's protections restrict not just the federal government, but also uh, restrict state governments. And so in this period, instead of having courts actually look to the history and, and what we would call the original public meaning of the Second Amendment, meaning the, the, what those words originally meant to everybody who understood them and agreed to ratify them. Instead of courts looking to that original public meaning, they started instituting this two-step test where they would look to see how, and I quote, like core to the Second Amendment, the conduct being regulated was. And then based on that analysis would apply some sort of level of scrutiny. And a level of scrutiny is essentially just the court balancing your rights against the government's interest in exercising its power. The problem was, uh, I mean, well, there's a lot of problems with that, but <laughs> the key problem was that in Heller, the court never said anything, never actually made this core distinction. They were lopping on to this quote where uh, Scalia basically says in the opinion that, you know, it's in, it, the right to possess a handgun for self-defense in the home is core to the Second Amendment's protections. It wasn't creating a class system. It's a turn of phrase. But courts glommed onto that. And then they also ignored the fact that in Heller, the court specifically rejected tiered scrutiny approaches and specifically said, you cannot balance individual rights against these purported interest in exercising government power, because that balancing was already done by the people when they ratified the amendment. And they balanced and they said that this right is so important to individuals that it's being removed from government's ability to regulate. It is not being granted the power. Government is not being granted the power to regulate in this space. 
But you have this two-step approach that is applied by courts for 14 years, essentially. I mean, you're going from, from Heller in 2008 through McDonald in 2010, and we don't get New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin until 2022. And in that 14-year span, there's a perfect example of this. Uh, there's an opinion from one of the judges on the Ninth Circuit who went back and looked at all of the Second Amendment cases that the Ninth Circuit had heard over that period. Uh, and it was upward of 50 different challenges to various gun control regulations, if I, if I remember correctly. And the judge noted that the Ninth Circuit had ruled for the government in every single challenge. Sure. Now, if your test results in the exact same winner every single time, maybe you should take a look at your test. Right. But that's kind of this backdrop that we had going into, into Bruin. And that's why Bruin was so earth shattering while also in reality, not doing anything new. Basically what Bruin does is Bruin restates Heller. It's, right. Hey, we said what we meant in 2008. We really mean it. We really do want you to be looking at text as informed by history. And since then, the period that we're in now, now that the court is at, that courts across the country are actually doing that analysis, actually doing the historical analysis, we're having wins across the country. And that's because these laws cannot survive true constitutional scrutiny. These laws are blatantly unconstitutional. They have no basis in the history of our nation. And they're broadly offensive to the exercise of individual right. And yet, They've been allowed to stand for more than a decade for some of these, or some of them are new and they're brand new infringements, but old infringement or new infringement, the point remains that the Second Amendment protects the right as we understood it in 1791, and that we need to look to that period to, to when we talk about and when we challenge these laws. And importantly, the burden is on the government to do so. The burden is not on individuals to prove their rights. The burden is on government to justify its exercise of power, and it should be incredibly heightened when that's infringing upon these, these fundamental individual rights. So let's move forward past New York v. Bruin then, because, I mean, like you said, it's only reinforcing Heller. And it's kind of like a, a stamping of the foot from the judiciary to be like, look, book and listen to what we're telling you <laughs> and can you explain just because a, a lot of people don't really I, I feel like I am not an attorney I don't know shit most of the time but like the terminology is easy for me to grasp right when you say remanded people don't understand what that means so some of the cases that are coming out right now they're being remanded back to the lower courts from the appellate courts so can you kind of talk about what that means? Like, why are they kicking them back rather than making rulings from their position? Can you kind of explain that to the audience so that they understand as we move through some of these cases? Absolutely. And, and Bruin is the perfect kind of framework to kind of talk about that a little bit. So what happened when the Supreme Court decided Bruin is that, so the Supreme Court is the really the only federal court in the United States with uh, a selective jurisdiction, essentially. And what that means is that the Supreme Court decides whether or not it's going to hear your case. They get 
thousands and thousands. We it's called a petition for writ of certiorari, and they get thousands of those every year. And yet the Supreme Court only hears around 60 to 70 cases a year. So they're hearing less than 1% of cases that people are asking the court to hear. Right. Um, and so what you had when, when Bruin was being argued and when it was being decided is you had several other Second Amendment cases that were up that had pending petitions for writ of certiorari. In other words, that they were just waiting for the court to say, yes, we're going to hear your case. No, we're not going to hear your case. And this is kind of common when, when the Supreme Court is going to deal with a landmark issue or something that is going to have a broad effect uh, on laws across the country or on different cases across the country. They'll often pick the one that they're going to hear and then hold the remainder. And what the Supreme Court did when it decided Bruin is it GVR'd those cases, which is a fancy legal term for grant, vacate, remand. What that means is the Supreme Court granted the petition, yes, we'll hear your case. But instead of having argument and issuing an opinion, all they did was vacate the opinion below, meaning they said, look, district court, circuit court, I know that you made a decision in this case, we're just going to erase that. That's okay. what like a, a vacater is. And then they remanded it. And so they sent it back down to the court and said, hey, look, we just erased your old opinion. Rehear this case, but you need to rehear it in light of what we just decided in Bruin. And so right. the court does that to send all of these cases back down to the lower courts with the new test. Again, like we just said, not necessarily a new test, but a, hey, we, we really mean it test. And rehear these cases and apply the test and the standard that we just set forth. So that remand pushed all those cases back. Now, a lot of these cases got pushed back to circuit courts. And then so circuit court is that middle level in the federal system. You've got your district courts, your circuit courts, and your Supreme Court. Um, district courts cover a state or a portion of a state. Circuit courts cover a number of states. Supreme Court obviously covers all of the states. And so this got pushed back. A lot of these cases got pushed back to their circuit courts. Those circuit courts had additional briefing to ask, how did Bruin affect, you know, the, the work that you've already done, the case before us, the briefing you've already done. Some of those courts had argument. And then some of those courts were like, oh, you're right. This did impact the analysis. We're going to send this back even all the way down to the district court to start anew. Gotcha. And so that remand is basically a court pushing it back to a lower court saying there's something you knew you need to consider, or we're going to make a decision on X, but I want you to consider Y and Z before we consider Y and Z. Right. The federal system is set up to basically- I mean, essentially, I, I just in pure layman's terms, they're saying- I'm kicking this back to you so you can make the proper ruling because this one is not correct. And if it makes it back up to us again, we're going to rule against you. So just do the right thing. Is that kind of like what that sounds like? See, you don't need a lawyer. You got it down. <laughs> <laughs> you said in like one sentence what it took me five minutes to explain. <laughs> exactly. It just, it's them kicking it back down going, nope, try again. Yeah. <laughs> um. So... Let's talk about some of the cases that have come out of New York v. Bruin or come out since New York v. Bruin. Uh, two, obviously, I mean, this just happened, was it yesterday or the day before? The Mock v. Garland case, huge fucking win for you guys. And you specifically, you're working on this case. So 
kind of talk me through, because I, I don't know what your rules are as far as like what you can talk about and what you can't. So kind of talk me through how this case has unfolded for you guys with regards to the pistol brace rule. Absolutely. And so, I mean, of course, you know, standard disclaimer is, you know, I can't give anybody legal advice. I'm not anybody's attorney. Uh, nothing I say should be construed as legal advice. Uh, if you have any questions about your individual status, you should consult with an attorney. So there's there's my uh, standard. I have a law license and I have to give you a disclaimer. Um, but I also mean it right. Like if you're sure. if no, people yeah. have questions, they should actually go and consult with an attorney because I don't think people also realize how many how much some of the your like individual scenario and your individual facts will affect um, your standing in the law. And so it's it's you know dangerous for attorneys to kind of go out and just make broad, bold statements um, about how things affect people because it, it doesn't affect everybody in the same way sometimes. So that's that's your disclaimer or, or your audience's disclaimer. Uh, <laughs> but the Moth v. Garland case is, is really interesting in the pistol brace context, right? So this is Biden's, the Biden administration's second big gun control rule. Uh, and it's the third rule that we've had in the last, you know, five or six years. Of course, with the Trump administration issuing the bump stock rule. Um, and then we had the framer receiver rule, which sought to redefine uh, both the term firearm and the term frame or receiver under federal law, um, which was issued by the Biden administration first. And then of course you've got this reclassification of braced pistols as if they magically became uh, rifles with the stroke of a pen. So, uh, you know, we have litigation against all three um, and the, the pistol brace one was, was a little bit unique in the way that it, it came about because when, of course, when the rule was published on January 31st of this year, the agency tried to make it effective immediately. Uh, and in fact, they even said that their interpretation, air quotes, of federal law was the correct interpretation and dated back and superseded all prior determinations. And they even suggested that, you know, people who had possessed these things under, you know, completely lawfully, and under ATF guidance before had always been in possession of something that might be illegal. And so it was a really, uh, really complicated and, and unique background to the way the rule came out. So we challenged it, you know, immediately. Uh, we challenged the, the rule the day that it became effective. And it was a, you know, it's been a mad dash. You can look like the, the docket where all kind of court filings is always public information but you can also go to firearmspolicy.org and you know look for any case that you're interested in and you can see all of the filings you know we we post most of the filings on our on our website so you can see them and you can just see how much uh, there was going on at the beginning and obviously there are four or five other cases that are also challenging this same rule um but you know we fought in the court for for what's called a, a preliminary injunction and what a preliminary injunction is, is it basically is the, the plaintiff's way of asking the court to put a pause on the new law or the new rule in this context so that it isn't in effect while you can argue your full case. And that's important because federal litigation takes a long time. Some of these cases will take, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, and yeah. it'll take a long time to get to a final decision. And basically what you're asking the court is just 
let's let's maintain the status quo until we can get to the full merits of our case. So that's what we were arguing in the pistol brace context. You know, we argued it in the district court and uh, the district court denied our, our, our motion for a preliminary injunction. So we immediately went to the fifth circuit on an emergency basis. Um, and the fifth circuit granted us an injunction, uh, granted it to the plaintiffs in the case, granted it to not just uh, those specific plaintiffs in the case, but also granted it to cover, uh, you know, our, our client uh, Maxim Defense, uh, granted it to cover their customers, and then, of course, granted it to cover FPC's members as well. And we went, we briefed that case before the Fifth Circuit. We had our argument and the opinion that, that you're mentioning, uh, the one that just came down. Basically, what the Fifth Circuit said is that we're likely to win the case. And that's important because that, so that's one of the preliminary injunction factors, a likelihood of success. But it's also important because it shows a really important flag for the future, right? We might not be on the merits question just yet, but the court, based on our existing briefing and based on, based on looking at the merits of the case, is saying that it thinks that we're right. And that's a huge signal for the future. So the other thing that the Fifth Circuit did was it left the existing injunction in place for... Uh, the earlier of 60 days or for the district court to make a further decision, uh, because in a perfect setup for this question, uh, as you asked before, it's been remanded back down to the district court to make a decision on the other preliminary injunction factors and on the appropriate scope of the injunction. So basically, in layman's terms, the Fifth Circuit said, look, we agreed uh, that people should be protected while this case is litigated. We continue agree to agree that people should be protected while this issue is litigated. District court, please analyze the remaining relevant factors and the scope, issue an opinion, and then we'll go from there. So that's going to lead me into my next question, which is... As you're seeing some of this unfold, what we're talking about, yeah, I mean, this is precedent setting legal decisions, right? So one of the biggest questions is, do you think, and this, I know, understand this is your opinion, and I want to make that clear to my audience, but that Thomas's opinion in Bruin is a script for courts to use to uphold the NFA and the Gun Control Act. No, no, I don't think so. To uphold? No, no, I don't think okay. so at all. So uh, I am, we have, and I, I don't know if, if people caught this in, in the mock uh, case, but we, we have an alternative claim that's directly challenging the constitutionality of the NFA. I mean, I know a lot of people are talking. I know. About and I'm, I really, I, I noticed that. <laughs> I don't know if other people did, but it could be fucking huge. Yeah, and, and I uh, I appreciate you being very kind to me and, and giving me the, the disclaimers necessary, but I'm happy to come out and say, like, the NFA is is unconstitutional. I mean, huge portions of it are unconstitutional. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Uh, the idea that the government can pass a tax, air quotes, in order to get around its ability to be able to regulate arms, I mean... Congress was not granted the power to regulate arms in this manner. We have 
let we're just allow me a little divergence back to the take the as foundation. much time as you want, Cody. <laughs> Constant con law one oh one uh with, with Cody. Um <laughs> our system of government was created with three branches, and the way that it was created is certain powers were granted to certain branches. The idea being separate the powers amongst the branches, but also enumerate the power that each branch has. Congress is a branch of government with an enumerated power. If you look at Article 1, Section 8, it lays out congressional power. Nowhere in there does Congress have some sort of power to regulate the possession of arms. In fact, the only thing that's necessarily relevant in Article 1 is that Congress has the power to arm the militias. So if Congress, yeah, you should be giving me a gun when I turn 18. Like your uh, exactly. job is to arm me. That is that is probably constitutional. <laughs> <laughs> Under Article 1, the government could probably hand out firearms to every person upon like reaching age of majority in the United States. And it pro it might be constitutional for them right. to do so. But these other statutes are are ridiculous in their basis. And so we brought, as an alternative claim in our mock case, we, we brought a challenge to the NFA and to the, the SBR ban, to the, the Sharpo rifle ban, or mm -hmm. effective ban. Obviously, I understand it's a licensing taxing system. Your listeners know, uh, sure. know the background there. But it, it, it's, it's a deterrent more so, I suppose, than a ban. Um, well, but, it's a way to keep poor people unarmed yeah, is yeah. really what it boils down to. That's really all it is. And it's it's a way to try to make these things culturally unpopular, right? Yeah. They're trying to artificially restrict what the market will do to make them culturally unpopular so that then they can say, look, these things aren't widely owned. They're not, and it's it's not because people don't want them. It's because the the process is so restrictive and so offensive that people don't want to go through with it. So, so what we said, so with the pistol brace rule, what the ATF is saying is it saying that these braced pistols that they've treated as braced pistols for 10 years are actually short barrel rifles? That's their claim. <laughs> so first, the rule's offensive. They're not short barrel rifles. They're pistols legally and, and lawfully, whatever. Even So our, our point to the court is, court, if you uphold the rule, if you agree with ATF, and these are short barrel rifles, then that means by the ATF's own admission, there's 3 million of those in circulation. Add that to the about 700,000 SBRs that are in circulation. And that means there's about 3.7 million of these rifles owned by, you know, by people across the United States. But it's not common use. 3.7 is pretty damn common use. <laughs> And so that's, I know, we, that's my point. I was yeah. being sarcastic, but I no, know. no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what we said to the court is like, Hey, you know, if the government is right, that these are SBRs, then SBRs are in common use and the government doesn't have the authority to regulate them outside of, you know, the historical regulations that were allowed around the period of 1791. And Oh, by the way, if you look at that historical period, there is nothing even remotely analogous to what the government is trying to do here. So I think when you look at text as informed by history, when you look at Thomas's opinion, even when you look at Heller, some of the language that people like will go on to and will look at saying is like, oh, well, this undermines this or this undermines this. It's not really, because even if there is a presumption of constitutionality for some of these things, 
presumptions can be overcome. That's the whole reason it's a presumption, not a final decision. Right. And the history here is clear. I mean, there is no historical analog to the restrictions that are placed on SBRs in, in our history at any point and or any point relevant to Second Amendment analysis. So I very much do think that, you know, there are legal avenues that are opening to these questions. The other side of that, though, is is incredibly important. And that's the culture side, right? If these things, if if we don't have the cultural shift for people to be wanting and willing to exercise their rights in this context, for SBRs to, you know, be in, you know, common parlance, to be regularly owned and possessed by people, then it makes it a lot harder to have those conversations in, in courtrooms. I, I always say, you know, so, so Andrew Breitbart famously said that politics is downstream of culture. Right. Well, courts are downstream of politics. And so if you don't have a shift in culture that affects politics, then it's not going to affect the courts. And the conversations that we're having in courtrooms, you know, law is a traditionally kind of small C conservative profession. If culture isn't shifting and these conversations aren't happening outside the courtrooms, then you can't really have the conversation in the courtrooms because the lawyers aren't ready to have it. The judges aren't ready to have it. And, and the people involved in the cases aren't ready to have it. But we've seen that shift in culture. We've seen that shift and in, you know, the political landscape. And importantly, we've got the, the Supreme Court opinions that demonstrate that when you that we need to be looking at original public meaning and that's going to spell doom for a lot of gun control laws. So I okay, I could talk to you for like 12 years and I'll probably have you on the show like a thousand times. But um, there are some questions from my listeners that they wanted to ask and I don't want to take up like I'm already getting close to an hour. I want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to get to some of these. So I do have a friend who is an attorney that asked some questions. So these are <laughs> these are a bit more specific, but it said a thing that I find interesting is the increase of criminal cases being dismissed on 2A grounds. Most civil libertarian groups only do civil cases or criminal appeals. Is FPC going to be more proactive in criminal cases? And like one case that comes to mind is the uh, U.S. v. Rahimi case, uh, where Zach Rahimi um, dragged his girlfriend to the car, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So, like, yeah. I, I'm that case, and then there was a case out of Louisiana too, and it was so funny because the judge was like, I think the guy was at the time he was on. Um, he was, uh, I want to say probation or it was like in between when he was supposed to go to court and he ended up having a firearm. He hadn't been convicted yet. So technically he wasn't violating the law. And anyway, the judge who ruled in the case cited New York v. Bruin, but he was so pissed. Like he, so his entire, he ruled in favor of the defendant, but his entire um, response was, I think this is stupid. I should not be <laughs> saying this, but because of New York v. Bruin, I have to say this. So are you, are, I, I guess I'm going to go back to the question that this person asked. 
do you think that FPC is going to be more more proactive in those criminal cases? So the the statute that he's talking about, um, he or she is talking about, I think you said he. Um, yeah. Okay. Is uh, 18 USC section 922. And that is, you know, a broad section that sets out unlawful firearms acts, basically. And there's a subsection in there, 922G, and that talks about prohibited persons, people who are prohibited by the federal government from possessing arms. Uh, we, FPC, has been very active in this space, in the 922G space, um, by, you know, working on and weighing in on several different cases in order to you know, hopefully have some of these incredibly unconstitutional restrictions overturned. You guys um, are working on a case too, where the guy uh, was in possession of marijuana in their seat, or their car or something in their firearm. Is that right? Yeah. So we've, we filed okay. a brief in that case. So there's the 922 G covers a lot of things, right? It, it covers what people have traditionally called the, uh, you know, the felon in possession statute, air quote. Yeah. Of course, I use air quotes because it's not actually a felon in possession statute. What it does is it prohibits anybody who is convicted of a crime punishable by more than one year's imprisonment from possessing a firearm. Now, that doesn't have to be a felony. And you don't actually have to serve more than one year in prison. So people who are convicted of nonviolent misdemeanors are forever prohibited from possessing a firearm. Which and is there is fucking stupid. Yeah, Sorry. there's no historical analog. There's nothing yeah. that you can point to to justify that power. Again, base level here, I would point back to Article One. I don't know why the hell that Congress is regulating some of these things in the first place, but uh, or, <laughs> or where they think they purport to have the power to do so. But even right. if you let's play the game, I suppose. Uh, I guess I am a lawyer at the end of the day, but. Um, <laughs> But when you look at that, like that statute, there's no historical analog. Our, our research, so at FPC Action Foundation, you know, we have our director of constitutional studies, Joseph Greenlee, who's done an immense amount of original research in, in this space and in others. And research shows that the only people who were disarmed around the founding, all of those disarmaments were based on the idea of dangerousness. Now, some of those, and indeed a vast majority of those, were based on discriminatory racist criteria, right? Like the founding, people of the founding era disarmed, you know, slaves, freedmen, um, Native American tribes, Indian tribes, and uh, Catholics, <laughs> very commonly. Um, and it was because they viewed those groups of people as dangerous at the time. Now, today, we obviously know that that's offensive and you can't just categorize people by immutable characteristics or by their religion. Um, and to do so would be revolting. Right. But there was also there are also some statutes where, you know, those that participated in the, you know, Shays, the Shays Rebellion were prohibited from possessing arms for a period of three years Um because they had engaged in, you know, an active revolt against the nation. So the only thing that you can see any history supporting is a, a prohibition on dangerous people for a period of time. If you're convicted, there was a case that went up through the courts where an individual was convicted of importing illicit cassette tapes in 1987. Half of the population today doesn't know what a cassette tape is. <laughs> <laughs> and that Cody, I know, I know. 
And that person is forever prohibited from possessing arms by the federal government. Like I'm like one week away from turning 40 and you just made me feel like super (laughs) (laughs) impossible. But like how offensive is that? And so there are there are other subsections here, right? Rahimi deals with subsection eight, um, which is people that are subject to a um, domestic violence protection order. There are cases uh, under subsection three of that, which deals with people who are an unlawful user of or addicted to any controlled substance. Uh, Again, no determination of actual danger or actual violence. Just if you use an illicit, a a substance that the government says is illicit, then they say that you can't also own guns, like, which is just as equally offensive. So there's a huge background in, in this 922 G section. It's something that courts have are really looking at much more closely now, uh, post Bruin. And it's something that we have been very active in and and will continue to be very active in because we support the right of peaceable people to possess the arms that they choose in order to defend themselves, their loved ones and their communities. And I think it's really important that we talk about peaceable people, not necessarily law abiding people. Now I, I, Yes, I do like that distinction that you guys make, like, because, I mean, uh, I I could go on a really long tangent about laws (laughs) and the people that make them, but I I would like to just touch on something really fast for my audience for, for that purpose. Like, I'm an absolutist when it comes to the Second Amendment, so I think that kind of breaks away from many in the community. I... I believe, even if it was a violent crime that you were arrested for, if you have served the sentence that the state imposed upon you for that crime, and they have deemed you fit for society, your right to keep and bear arms for your own self-defense does not go away. That is a natural-born right that you are given, and the state cannot take that away from you if they have deemed you safe for society. Um, I I. I break away pretty hard on that. I think that if you are in this country and you have a gun, you have the right to have it. If the state does not, if you, if you're not safe for society, you shouldn't be out. You shouldn't be out in society. What? Yeah. What federal law has effectively done is, is create a class system in society, right? Like these people, we value their lives more. So we're going to allow them to protect themselves. And, And, but Congress doesn't value these people, people's lives. So we're not going to allow them to protect themselves. I mean, at the end of the day, Congress has no right to tell you whether or not you should be able to protect your life. Like that's insane to me. Yes. Um, And effectively that's what a lot of these laws are doing, right? Is there, all they're really doing is prohibiting people from being able to protect their own lives. And, you know, it's, yeah, we could go on a very long rant on this. I know. Sure. Uh, maybe, maybe another day, another. Yeah. Uh, another um, so a couple more questions. I'm just going to go to a couple of these. Oh, shoot. I just totally like went off of. So I'm going to ask this one real quick while I go find that other screen that I just accidentally closed off of. Um, so the other question that he posed was another area of discussion is over the administrative law Chevron challenges. It seems that the state AG cases want to focus on whether ATF rules are properly passed as opposed to being unconstitutional in general. 
And so that's my, I, I think maybe my biggest bone of contention with a lot of this stuff are these rules, rules that come out of the executive. Those are not laws. Like I, I'm real sorry, but the energy department, the ATF, the FBI, you can issue as many rules as you want to, but those aren't laws. Like it, it did not go through Congress. It was not signed into law by the president of the United States and it hasn't been upheld by a court. Like it, the way that the executive branch has determined itself to be a law writing branch of government is it blows my fucking mind. I don't understand it. Yeah, this is this is another whole episode in itself too. Uh, so <laughs> this is now we've we've done con law. Uh, now we'll shift into admin law. Um, so there's actually kind of two questions behind that. So the first is this question of Chevron deference, which honestly is what is kind of has has helped lead to you know the problem that you're pointing out, and that's. Chevron, Chevron deference is this doctrine that was established by the Supreme Court about 40 years ago. And what it says is that, and I'm going to, you, you have to forgive me for taking the role or, or quoting the court here. This is obviously not how I think, but the court sure. basically says uh, that because these agencies are experts in their field, uh, <laughs> that if they have a reasonable interpretation of federal law, that the court should defer to the agency's interpretation of that law. The problem is reasonable has been stretched. So first the court didn't, it's not even that the agency has to have the best interpretation of the, of congressionally enacted law. It just has to be a reasonable one. So even if you have a better interpretation, the court still might defer to the agency. Right. Um, and, and it's doing this through the agency's yeah, rulemaking processes and their, their implementation of, of policy. Executive branch agencies are supposed to enforce law. They're not supposed to write law. Right. Yet we've gotten into a place where Congress cares more about campaigning and fundraising than they ever did about passing law. And so they pass these vague laws so that any time a constituent, uh, you know, complains about what they're doing they can go oh well the law we passed doesn't do that that's the executive branch doing that like we didn't want them to do that right but they're passing these vague laws and the agencies love it because then the agencies will come in and they'll pass you know they'll they'll sorry they won't pass they'll draft and publish rules and regulations that purport to interpret those vague laws and they can interpret them any way they want so long as it's you know air quotes reasonable and the court's going to defer. And it's basically removed an entire check on branches of government. It's vested the executive branch with power to legislate that it's not supposed to have. And then it's removed the judicial check on the executive branch by telling courts to defer to the agencies. So we just actually filed a brief in a case where the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not it's going to overrule Chevron deference. Uh, the case is Loper Bright v. Raimondo. And it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court next term, but briefing is on ongoing. And we filed a brief in that case, pointing to the history of the separation of powers and how offensive Chevron deference is. Um, and I got on such a rant. I don't remember the other part of the question. Mark, but Well, hang on. I wanted, I just wanted to touch on one thing because yeah. you bringing this up Higginson, who was the judge in the Mock v. Garland case that gave the dissenting opinion, 
he was like, uh, well, we were just ruling on based off of a law that Congress had already passed. It, it is a prime example of where these, it's almost like lazy where they're just like, oh, well, Congress passed it. So it's okay. It, and that reminds me of the other part, which brings right nicely into it. Um, and that's where you get to this problem of like, are we dealing with the process of passing the rule, the contents of the rule or the constitutionality of the rule? Right. So, you know, obviously our argument in that case was no, that this isn't just merely an interpret an interpretation of of federal law, but instead the agency is in effect drafting a law and is in effect passing something because it's completely, you know, it's creating an, an entirely new section of, of criminal law, really. I mean, an entirely new punishment. So that was our argument in the case. And the they reason- didn't even, they changed the rule. Like oh, they yeah. changed what they, what they put out to the public is not what they actually put into effect. So when you offered, it was a violation. I can't remember what the hell that's called. Uh, what's that act called or whatever, like where they can put these rules out? Administrative Procedure Act. Thank you. Um, it's a violation of that in, yeah. in its core. Yeah. And so we made, we had a, you know, we obviously made the constitutional arguments in this case. And we also made the the Administrative Procedure Act arguments in this case. And what a lot of people saw was that the court, ruled on the APA claims. A lot of that is due in part to another judicially created doctrine called the doctrine of constitutional avoidance. Um, And basically the idea there is that if a court can strike down or resolve a case based on a non-constitutional issue, it should do so before ever ruling on a constitutional issue. The, the reasoning behind the doctrine is, 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 is that if there's a statutory law problem, a process problem, that those things should be dealt with and resolved first to avoid too many constitutional rulings, air quotes. So right. you're, you're always or you're very commonly going to see courts look to statutory claims or look to process claims before they'll look to constitutional claims because of that doctrine. Now, in this case, in our view, you know, it's very clear that this is a straight constitutional violation. But of course, we also noted and we also argued, and this is what the Fifth Circuit, you know, looked at and and ruled on. It's also a violation of the APA. It also failed to follow the requirements that Congress put on executive branch agencies for issuing their rules under the APA. In other words, the executive branches stupid like (laughs) at this point i'm sorry um i digress okay i'm gonna ask just a couple of these real quick and then i'm gonna let you go i appreciate you giving me so much of your time um i feel like at this point i'm on the clock i need to start paying you uh so billable hours at 15 minutes now um so someone posed the question and i just want to ask this for clarification because this has been a, a when i put this out a lot of people ask this question so if i am a member of fpc am i okay to have an a brace a pistol brace which turns my gun into an sbr um as a as an fpc member does the injunction cover me Ooh. So here's where we're in this space of, I cannot give people individual legal advice and I cannot tell people necessarily how a court ruling applies to them. Here's what I can say. Here's what we've been saying. um, And, you know, here's what you can see on, 
you know, FPCs messaging across, right? So we got that injunction from the Fifth Circuit and we got clarification on the injunction. And the Fifth Circuit clarified that the injunction covers FPC's members and that the injunction prohibits the ATF from enforcing the pistol brace rule against the people that are, are um, under the injunction, the plaintiffs in the case, which included FPC's members. We've always in our case, you know, maintained that we represent our members. We're a membership organization. We entered the lawsuit in order to protect our members' interests. We asked for clarification from the Fifth Circuit, and that's what the Fifth Circuit said. The Fifth Circuit said that FPC's members, as we read the injunction, says that um, FPC's members are amongst those that were uh, within the, the injunction that the Fifth Circuit granted. So that's, that, is, uh, that is our position. That's how we read the injunction. And, uh, and I, I hope that that is helpful for people. It- I think that it will be Um, just make sure that you have your, your card in your pocket. And if you are not a member of FPC within the show description, you can go click that link and join to uh, fight the cause with them. Again, I, I don't, I cannot stress enough how, like if you really sit and think about where we're at right now from a peaceable gun ownership position, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys, because, you know, we don't, it's crazy. You have like the Bloombergs and the every town and the moms demand action. You don't have that in the gun community. Like you don't have the, the large activists because then you get labeled as a domestic terrorist. So I, I'm just so grateful for you guys and the work that you do and the effort that you put in for us. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, we're, of course, grateful for you, for you, like amplifying the message and and telling people what's going on and, and speaking to the people, you know, and we're really grateful to all those people who have joined FPC and who have become FPC members. And, you know, we hope that they'll continue to uh, to stay on as members and we'll hope that more we hope that more people will join and, and you know, if they can donate and support above and beyond just the cost of a membership. But I think what you're what you're doing is incredibly important. You know, we can sit in courtrooms and we can have these battles, but we have to be translating what's going on in courtrooms to the people. We, people have to be talking about these rights, talking about these issues, and like I said, influencing culture. And that is such an important element of what FPC does, right? We do so much in the courtroom, but we also do so much to try and and talk to people and in, interact with people. And you do that incredibly well uh, and you amplify the message incredibly well. So we're, we're eternally grateful for everything that you're doing as well. I love you, Cody. Okay. One more question and then I'll let you go Uh, because this came up quite a bit. So what, and you may not be able to speak to this because I don't know if you're working on this case or not, but what's going on with the Texas suppressor lawsuit in layman's terms? Like the suppressors are on the NFA list. It's a safety device. I don't understand why suppressors are being regulated by the NFA, but I'm curious to hear if not your legal opinion, then just your personal opinion on that. Uh, so as for the case, you're right. Like we're, we're not involved in that, uh, that litigation specifically that was brought by the state of Texas. Um, my understanding, I haven't looked at the case in a little while, but my understanding is that uh, the case was dismissed based on standing and what the court 
essentially says in its standing analysis, not specifically for that case, but generally speaking, is courts look to see whether somebody has been injured by a law sufficient to be able to bring a challenge to it and that the court can issue relief that will redress the injury. Uh, basically, what that means is that the court looks to see, is the person suing harmed by the law? Are they actually harmed by the law? Are the people that they're suing the right people that are responsible for passing or enforcing the law? And can I, as a court, actually do something that will prevent the people from being harmed if they're correct that the law is unconstitutional or is inappropriate in this context? Uh, so my understanding is that I think that lawsuit was dismissed for on a standing ground, but I, I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, it's it's outside of our portfolio, obviously. But uh, what I would say is, I mean, you know, I think that that we're talking about another thing that I I certainly haven't seen any sort of historical justification for what the government is doing. And, um you know, there's there's always an important consideration when you're looking at these these lawsuits to make sure that we're filing good and important lawsuits um, at the right time and in the right places. Um, right. And so I, I think that it is I don't know of a historical justification for what the federal government is doing. I I certainly haven't seen one. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a, a really important issue that uh, we'll continue to uh, monitor and watch for. Okay. I am going to let you go because I've kept you 20 minutes longer than I expected to, but um, <laughs> can you please tell people uh, where to find you personally, if you want them to find you? I don't even know if you want people to come find you, but um, where to find you personally. And then I will be sure to link the uh, membership link uh, for Firearms Policy Coalition in the show description. For sure. I mean, so first and foremost, uh, you know, you can see my work. So I'm actually, uh, I am now the general counsel and vice president of legal at FBC Action Foundation, um, where I also, you know, obviously we work very closely with FBC and I, um, you know, represent FBC and FBC's members in, in several contexts and, and work on FBC's litigation portfolio. Hold uh, on, Cody. What's the distinction between the two, the legal action versus FPC? Can you yeah, talk absolutely. about the distinguish, like what distinguishes the difference between the two of them? Yep. So FPC is a, you know, is the, is a 501c4 under the IRS code. Uh, it's a membership organization that also has the ability to lobby and to do some of those, those direct, you know, grassroots action work that FPC does. Uh, FPC Action Foundation is, is a 501c3 under the IRS code. We don't do any, uh, any lobbying. Uh, but what we do is we work very closely with FPC to kind of advance the shared mission. Um, so there are some, you know, distinctions between the two. But for, for most purposes, for what people need to know is that, you know, FPC is that, that membership organization um, and, you know, always has been and always will be that kind of loud voice in the space for people uh, on, you know, Twitter and on social media, uh, telling politicians to, you know, Fuck you now. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, so that is very much what FPC is. FPC Action Foundation is, is, you know, another, another partner organization in that fight. And really, you know, you'll hear us talk about FPC law and FPC law is kind of the broad, 
project umbrella that we all kind of, you know, that we'll tend to work under to advance the mission, to advance the cause, to, to you know, bring these cases. So that's kind of the, the, the distinction um, in a very quick uh, statement. But, you know, of course, people can, you know, you've already mentioned joinfpc.org. They can see the, my work and, you know, the organization's work at firearmspolicy.org and all of the other stuff on social media at gun policy. Um, I am at the wizard of laws with a Z on just about every relevant uh, social media platform. And uh, generally that's where you'll see me kind of yelling about my work and, and uh, government interference. Sometimes you're going to see all those articles he's going to be writing (laughs) and all those articles that I'm going to be writing. Exactly. So (laughs) Uh, sometimes I stray away from just uh, gun rights. I am a, a much a broader uh, constitutional rights attorney or constitutionally protected rights attorney. Uh, I just happen to be uh, see the fight in guns right now. And so that's where the, the fight in the space is. But that's where you can find us, uh, our work and me. Thank you so much for joining me today, Cody. I really appreciate you. And to everyone listening Uh, If you enjoyed the episode, please like, share, subscribe, do all of the crap that you're supposed to do, but especially get this message out, changing culture, making sure that people understand why this fight is so important. I think Cody does a really good job of lining that out. So I love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. And Cody, thank you again for joining me. You guys take care great day. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death!